Okay, let's read together uh, Luke 24, beginning verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along the way? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, um, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. On occasion now we've been um, in a series looking at the events of the Easter weekend uh, in the book of Luke. We've been looking at the circumstances that led up to uh, Jesus' death. But wonderfully, it's very important for us to see that it didn't end there. Um, A message on the cross shouldn't just end with the cross. There's something further for us to to consider. We began doing that um, last time we were in Luke, um, on the first day of the week, um, when some of the the women who were Jesus' followers went to the tomb, and they found it open but empty. And they then meet an angel who reminds them of Jesus' words. Now, obviously, what happened in the course of time is that the apostles and the believers became incredibly uh, confident um, of what had taken place. They'd seen Jesus crucified. Obviously, no one had witnessed at the exact moment uh, Jesus being resurrected from the tomb. But they, they, they come to be witnesses of his resurrection. And so uh, Paul confidently writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 
says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, Paul is writing there to some who perhaps would begin to doubt in the resurrection of the dead. Paul is reminding them, no, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Not only that, but he's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. When a harvest is taken, the first fruits would be taken first, almost a, a guarantee that the rest of the harvest um, was to follow. So just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, we know that those who've fallen asleep in Christ are raised with him also. A wonderful promise to us. In the book of, book of Acts, we have um, Peter preaching on a number of occasions. We can look at one of those occasions in Acts chapter 10 and verse 39. Peter speaks there and says, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. The message became absolutely, abundantly clear to Jesus' followers. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. If Jesus only died, then we have no hope. We have no hope of eternity with him. But since Jesus rose from the dead, we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, a hope of glory that we were singing about earlier. However, right at this point, as, as Luke is recounting the day, the day of Jesus' resurrection, right at this point, his followers are still trying to get their heads around what has happened. Uh, and then initially, in fact, all of them uh, were skeptics. All of them doubted in some way. They doubted the report that the women had brought to them. Some of them had seen the, the empty tomb, but their talk of angels and of Jesus being alive uh, just seemed like nonsense. And so what we see is that the, the entire Christian community began by being skeptical. They began with doubts and questions. And we then hear the, see the story here of two, two disciples as they were traveling to the road, on, the, on the road to Emmaus, aware of the facts, but trying to puzzle it out. They are, they are baffled and they have doubts, and they have questions. As we were worshipping God, Deborah brought that, uh, the word to us, uh, an encouragement to us, not to, well these are perhaps my words in explanation, but not to be shaped by disappointments. Um, God is bringing us as a church into a new time, and we're not to allow disappointment to affect our thinking, or to shape our thinking, or to constrain what we are expecting God uh, wants to do in our midst. We want to believe him, step into all that he has. And yet we can be, we can be shaped by disappointments. Doubts can come in because of disappointment. That was the case for these two disciples on the road uh, to Emmaus. Doubts had come in. We see that verse 21. Um, they described there, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We, we had hoped. Their expectation was that Jesus, the Messiah, would redeem and rescue the nation. But now it's in the past tense. It's a hope that they did have. They're not so sure of it now. Surely then they expect, this, uh, they expect Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. But ha- perhaps now they're starting to downgrade 
their expectations, their understanding of who Jesus is. And so uh, earlier in verse 19, they say, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet. Well, many people were saying he was a prophet, but surely he was uh, more than a prophet. He was the very son of God. He was the Messiah, as they said themselves, who were coming to to redeem Israel, coming to bring a new time, coming to open a completely new era in world history. Oh, well, he was a prophet. That's where they seem to be now. So they know, they know the facts of the Easter weekends. They know that he was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They know that the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, that Jesus was crucified they know that um, his mission was to redeem. He was the Messiah come to, to rescue people. And they know that three days later, he, was gonna, he predicted that three days he was, after three days he was going to uh, rise again to new life. And this report has come to them that the tomb is empty. In effect, all the facts are laid before them. But it's rather like just having a jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces are kind of scattered on the floor. As a family, we never really got much into jigsaw puzzles, but you could bet that at Christmas time, for some reason, it, I don't know, it's like ritual torture, really, someone would bring out a 500-piece a or a 1,000-piece uh, jigsaw puzzle, and that was our fun for the festive uh, period. Um, on the whole, I found some other things to do. But anyway, um, there's, there's a jigsaw puzzle, and... Piece by piece, it gets put into place. Some people like to start with the edges and, and then kind of like build up. Oh, I'll find a corner piece, excellent. Some people like to find a significant part of the picture and then kind of go from there. Um, but a lot of time, a lot of energy, piece by piece, what seems very puzzling gets brought together. And at last, then we got to see the big picture. And so we can kind of look at these disciples and we can kind of think, well, why haven't, they puzzled, why haven't they pieced it together yet? They know the facts. They under, they, 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 they've spent time with Jesus. And they've got an awareness of the word of God. How come they seem to be so slow to uh, piece things together? When we as a family did a jigsaw, we had the advantage of actually having a picture. And so we could look at the picture and see, right, well, here, here are all the disconnected picture, uh, pieces, but we know what it's supposed to look like. Uh, and so we've got that to refer to. Now we can see where things go. For these disciples, it's almost like they don't yet have the full picture, or perhaps it's just the case that there are some pieces, or there's one piece in particular that is missing, and so they're puzzled. They're, they're baffled. They don't yet see that Jesus uh, has been raised from the dead, and so the puzzle is not quite fitting together. How do we handle, how do we handle disappointments? How do we handle expectations that have not been met in the way that we were hoping? Yeah, oh, we'd, we'd believed God for, for something. We'd been holding on to God for something. Well, yeah, we, we had hoped. Now, uh, now we've moved on. Now we've just become a little bit more sceptical. We're not so easy to convince now. Um, we, we've got some doubts and some questions. These, uh, these two believers are processing their doubts. And disappointment threatens to shape them. 
It threatens to shape them in a number of ways. They've become despondent. We see that as Jesus uh, speaks to them. Uh, We're told in verse uh, 17 that they stood still. They they were walking, uh, walking along. Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they're stopped in their tracks, their faces downcast. They're they're despondent. We've already seen they're, they're doubting. They're less certain now of the things that they were hoping for. And also, it would appear that they are drifting. Disappointment is shaping their life, and they, it would appear, are drifting. They, right at the beginning of verse 13, we, we find they're, they're heading back to Emmaus. It, it's a puzzling decision. Why were they heading back to Emmaus? They'd They'd heard the reports that the tomb was empty, um, and they, they knew all the facts, as it were, and they're, they're able to say um, them, themselves, it's the third day since all this took place. And Jesus said on the third day he would raise, uh, be raised again to new life. So, so why are they drifting off? Why are they just heading back? Are they just going back to, back to their old life? Uh, heading back, back home, perhaps. It can look like a strange decision. When disappointment gets a hold, we can make strange decisions. We can drift off. We might not be thinking per se, well, that's it. I'm, I'm totally now going to throw in the towel. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rejecting all that I believe. No, they're not perhaps saying that. They're just they're following their emotions, and their emotions are leading them, um, uh, leading them off in a, in a different direction direction they're drifting now what I want us to see as we look at this that's the setting that's the situation for these two what I want us to see is how does Jesus himself relate to these two disciples these two disciples who are processing their doubts their despondency their grief how does Jesus relate to them That then informs also how Jesus then relates to us when our faith is shaken and also can help us know how to relate to one another um, when that's the case as well. And uh, we see, first of all, how does Jesus relate to these two disciples? Before anything else, we need to see that Jesus, Jesus cares about these two. Jesus could have just focused on the 11 disciples, once 12, now 11, his, his closest group. Here, here were the, the disciples that he planned to build his church upon. He, here are the ones he spent most time with explaining. And uh, here are the ones that are, are, he wants to, to kind of bring through to uh, roles of leadership and so on. Um, but Jesus is not just interested in the big names. He's not just interested in those who would outwardly, at least, uh, outwardly at least, appear to be the most influential, um, the most uh, powerful, those with the most prominent positions. Our culture has a great way of sidelining certain groups. Uh, and certain, certain people, certain occupations might be uh, very valued, but others less so. Full-time mums can feel sidelined, not... Um, not as worthwhile in the eyes of the world. Well, what does God say? God says, I'm very interested in what you're doing. Our culture kind of might have a fascination uh, with youth and uh, 
talents and therefore overlooks people who don't obviously fit into those categories. Our society can be very good at overlooking uh, children and the very youngest amongst us. Um, And our society can be very good at just overlooking those who are having a hard time. So typical of Luke when he's telling um, the events of the Easter weekend that he draws our attention to ordinary people, ordinary disciples. He's doing that here with these two ordinary disciples. He focuses, he gives a lot of time and attention to their journey of faith. But we've, also, we've already seen that Jesus, uh, Jesus reached out and healed the servant in the garden um, whose ear was cut off. He, this servant had come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus, in his moment of crisis, turns to heal him. A guy who really just seemed incidental in the story, but Jesus notices. We've seen as well that Jesus interacts with the daughters of Jerusalem as he's being led uh, to the place where he would be uh, crucified. Again, he, he makes known, as it were, his concern, his compassion for the daughters of Jerusalem in chapter 23 and verse 28. He's always giving his attention to others and not getting um, preoccupied uh, with his own uh, challenges that he's facing. We see that he's prayed for those who executed him. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And we see his wonderfully compassionate response uh, to one of the criminals who was hung on a cross beside him who asks Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke loves to draw our attention to uh, ordinary people and how Jesus interacts with them, how Jesus demonstrates he really, really cares. That's uh, what uh, Luke wants to bring our attention to. Jesus is not just interested in us because of what we have to offer. Jesus is not just interested in us if he thinks, well, oh yes, I can see how they will have a, a huge amount of influence. I see how they have a lot of skills, a lot of ability, a lot of leadership ability perhaps. Um, I'll, I'll make sure I give a lot of attention to them, but I won't give so much attention to others. Jesus is not interested in us because of what we have to offer him. Jesus is interested in us because of what he has to offer us. Jesus cares. So how does Jesus relate to these two disciples? Well, he cares, but also he expresses that care by going to them in person. Jesus meets them exactly where they are, where they are at. He goes to where they are. He could have gone straight to the 11 disciples, but he chooses instead to go to these two ordinary disciples. We only know one of their names clear past. It could have been uh, they were two guys. It could have been they were a couple um, who had been following Jesus now heading back home. Jesus goes to them. He walks alongside them. He goes to this pair of doubting disciples who are in danger of drifting away. Jesus ministers to those who are in need. He's a, a shepherd who knows his own sheep and he knows the sheep in the flock that especially need attention. Jesus also doesn't write them off. He doesn't just think, well, they're, they're drifting off now. They're raising, they're, they've got questions, they're uncertain. They, they're, they've got doubts in their minds. 
Clearly, they're not strong enough. I will just leave them to it. No, Jesus goes after them. His purpose is to see them kind of back on their feet again. They're, they're down, but they're not out. And Jesus wants to lift them up. There's a wonderful prophecy that Isaiah brings describing what Jesus would be like, this servant that God would send to bring salvation. And we see in Isaiah chapter 42 a, a description that describes the, the gentleness, the tenderness of the Savior. Beginning from verse 1, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. He will, not cry, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. And on it goes. We see there that phrase there, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You can't, you can't do very much with a bruised reed. Here we've got two bruised disciples you can't do much with a smoldering wick there are people of faith but their faith has just taken a little bit of a squashing it's taken a bit of a beating what does jesus do does he say well in my kingdom there's no place for those who are suffering in that way. There's no place for those who might be grieving. There's no place for those who are asking questions. There are no place for those who might have doubts, that might have questions. There's no place for those who've got disappointments. I can't rely on them. If I, if I apply any weight there, well, surely they'll just, they'll just break. I'll, I'll just go and spend my time with those who've really got some spiritual muscle. No, Jesus goes to them. He meets with them in person. You know, from a distance, it's easy to, to see this situation and just kind of throw the right answer at them. Jesus doesn't just stand at a distance and kind of aggressively lob the right answer. Jesus goes to them. He walks with them. He talks with them. He begins actually by asking them questions. What were you discussing together as you uh, as you were walking along. In verse 19, he's, he's wanting to draw out of them um, what these things are. So he, he kind of acts ignorant. Cleopas asks him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you do not know the things that, you've, that have happened here uh, in these days? What things? He asked. Tender Lord Jesus is going to them and is gently wanting to nurture their faith. Bring them back, as it were, to a place where their faith is, is strengthened. Jesus, Jesus isn't served by any of us as though he needed anything. Jesus doesn't need us. So if we are weak, and if we have questions, Jesus isn't so irritated because he thinks, well, I now can't use that person. Tender Lord Jesus goes to two disciples. He steps in. He intervenes. He helps them to piece things together. He helps them to see the big picture as it truly is. Again, it's easy just to stand at a distance, arms folded, and kind of shout the right answer at someone. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. 
These, these disciples, they're, they're trying to piece things together, but it's like they don't see the complete picture yet, so how can they piece things together? Jesus steps in, who has a complete awareness of God's big picture, and he begins to say, look, here's how things piece together. We kind of bring our questions uh, to, them, to him, therefore. And for us, the fact is, for all of us, we had our questions and doubts answered because Jesus chose to step into our lives. The fact that we are saved is because Jesus chose to meet with us. We had a personal encounter with Jesus. These disciples knew all the facts, but they couldn't see how things pieced together until Jesus came amongst them and Jesus spoke. So we see that Jesus cares. We see that Jesus meets with them where they are at. We also see a fascinating detail that Jesus wasn't, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him straight away. Jesus doesn't reveal himself. The risen Lord Jesus in this situation didn't reveal himself in a very blatant or obvious way straight away. Sometimes for us, it can be easier in hindsight to recognize those occasions when God has stepped into our lives, when God has been speaking, when God has been um, trying to bring our attention uh, back to him or uh, raise our faith. If we've been encountering a crisis of some sort, sometimes it's easier to see in hindsight how God came alongside us. God stepped into our lives. Sometimes for us, that can be uh, not by a physical appearance of the Lord, but by a knowledge of his presence, which is internal. Sometimes it can be through other people who are uh, bringing the word of God to us, bringing encouragement, helping us to see things, um, see things right, and helping us not to be shaped by our disappointment. Nevertheless, it still raises the question in this passage, how come they didn't recognize him straight away? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that Jesus now has a, resurre- a resurrection body. We read earlier on in 1 Corinthians 15 how Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Um, in discussing the, the, the resurrection body, uh, Jesus goes on, uh, sorry, Paul goes on later on in that chapter um, to say a little bit more. Uh, in verse 42, for example. He writes, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is what's happened to Jesus. He was sown. He's He died, and when he died, that body, as it were, being sown, it was perishable. It was dishonored. It appeared weak and just very natural. And so Jesus' disciples have been familiar with Jesus, the Son of God, in weakness. The Son of God, subject to the same frustrations they would have known themselves. But now, he has been raised in power, the Son of God in power. Death has been defeated. He has passed through death. He's no longer in that realm. He's no longer in the realm, therefore, where things are per- perishable, dishonored, weak, or just natural. 
Jesus now has a body which is uh, glorious. It is imperishable. It's been raised in glory, raised in power, and it is spiritual. He's been risen from the dead, and death can no longer harm him. One reason why perhaps they didn't recognize him straight away. But there's also another reason. They were kept from recognizing him, it says in verse 16. They were kept from recognizing him. Well, that sorely suggests that God had some purpose in keeping it from them. It was purposeful on God's part that Jesus wasn't recognized straight away. It was important they didn't recognize him uh, straight away because they weren't just to have an encounter with the presence of Jesus. Jesus wants to draw their attention to the word of God. Jesus cares, so Jesus went to them. Jesus wasn't recognized because Jesus wants them to be drawn to the word of God. Jesus brings the word of God to them. We are to be a people of the word and the spirit. But we can't quite, uh, we can't divide the two. We can't say, I, I prefer those wonderful moments where um, Jesus just makes his presence known and it almost becomes a tangible experience. God is here. God is amongst us. Oh, that's what I prefer. I'm not really into the word of God. That doesn't make sense in God's kingdom. It doesn't make sense equally to say, I, just give me the word. I, I don't want to know anything about God's immediate presence. I'm, I'm not expecting um, God to reveal himself in some tangible way. Just give, me the, just give me the truth. Just give me the facts. Well, no, Jesus comes and it's both. It's both the presence of God and, vitally, the word of God. And so, in verse 27, Jesus conducts what must have been the most awesome Bible study that's ever taken place. They had about seven miles worth of, of journey to go along, so kind of Jesus had the best part of that just simply to spell out everything in all the scriptures concerning himself. Would you not want to be part of that conversation? Would you not want to listen in to how he described things? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus wants to draw our attention to the word of God so that we are aware of his presence with us. We're not alone. We've not been left as orphans in this world. We will never be truly alone in this world. If we're in Christ, then the Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit of Jesus is in us. And the Spirit of God is also the sword of the Spirit. It wants to bring the Word of God to us. I kind of wonder, I wonder, like I said, what did Jesus say, how much did Jesus say? He must have patiently gone through a whole ream of scripture to describe uh, what took place. It would seem in particular that what he wanted to draw their attention to was this in verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I believe that whatever the conversation that took place, his uh, exposition, his explanation of all the scriptures was really homing in to help them to see that. They would have been aware of a lot of prophecy. They would have been aware of a, a lot of the scriptures. Perhaps what they'd overlooked 
Perhaps the reason why disappointments had begun to get hold of them and shape their lives is that they had failed to see what Scripture itself said was that the Christ had to suffer these things to enter his glory. Maybe they were just aware of the glory, the, the prophecies that would speak of the glory of this messianic, this future saviour that would come. Therefore, their faith was shaken when Jesus suffered and died. How does this relate? Maybe Jesus would have begun by looking at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 when Adam and Eve had sinned and they are about to be kind of expelled from the garden In chapter 3, God begins to kind of pronounce um, his verdict or his curses as a result of the sin that's taken place. And he begins, as it were, by addressing the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. He says in verse 14, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's a a hint there. There's a a promise there to come. That there is to come an offspring. A man will come who will crush the serpent and all his work. He will crush the serpent's head under his heel. In the process, that offspring, that man himself, will have his heel struck. Jesus came, the Messiah, in order to destroy the works of darkness, to destroy death, to destroy the problem of sin, and to bring us back, reconcile us to our God. He will crush the serpent's head. That's triumphant, that's wonderful, that's glorious. And you will strike his heel. There was a note already. There's suffering for the Savior will be involved. I wonder also if Jesus touched on Isaiah and chapter 53. A chapter there that tells of the suffering that God's servants would experience. We're told in, in, uh, in, in Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds uh, we are healed. Again, this note of suffering that would bring about triumph, that we would know peace with God because of the punishment that he took upon himself. As the chapter there, chapter 53, um, comes to a crescendo, we read also in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So again, we see the notes of suffering, suffering involved in what the Savior would come to do. But I think what Jesus is trying to bring their attention to 
is this. And what we need to know, so that we don't allow our life to be shaped by disappointments, is that suffering for Jesus, and therefore also suffering for us, is not the destination. Suffering is likely to be the path by which we travel, but the destination is glorious. American theologian D.A. Carson has so helpfully uh, commented, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. A life in Christ is not one that is immune from suffering. However, there is a but. Suffering is not the destination. As we consider a member, a dearly loved member of the church passing away this weekend, we can agree together. Suffering is not the destination. Glory is the destination. Think of that criminal who is on the cross. And as he hung there, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today, today you will be with me. Suffering for that man was not the destination. Glory was the destination. That is the case for us. Those disciples on the road to Emmaus were in danger of having disappointments shape their lives. They were in danger of allowing um, reasonable doubts to become just general despondency and hopelessness. They were in danger of drifting. They were in danger of just leaving it all behind. Jesus, in his wonderful, gracious mercy, thinks, therefore, they're the first ones I'm going to appear to. They're the ones I'm going to reveal myself to. They're the ones I need to go to because they're my sheep. None of my my sheep are going to be snatched out of the Father's hand, so I'm going to them. I'm not going to lob aggressively or hardly truth at them from a distance. It's so important for us that when we we observe other people, uh, friends and family who might be experiencing crises of faith in one way or another, that our response isn't just to kind of like hurl at them the right answer, Oh, come on, you know, as if that's necessarily going to help. Jesus comes alongside. Jesus walks with. Let's be a people who walk with one another, as it were. Let's be a people who who know how to go and and bring comfort, but also bring, bring truth in a way that kind of nurtures and builds strength again. Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit was, and he, he comes to us when we're bruised. He comes to us when uh, we're a wick that has just been sm- has just started to smolder. There's life there, but it's just, it's just been squashed. It's just been dampened. Jesus comes alongside to nurture and encourage and, and kind of draw us, draw us back to the Word. If we're going to have firm faith, it's going to be because we've become more and more familiar with what God says in his word. 
they may have thought that it was the end of hope. They might have thought that it was the end of their hope. But in actual fact, it was the beginning. They are transformed. These disciples are transformed from despondency. They're brought into delight. Where they were drifting, they kind of find their direction again. And they return to Jerusalem to meet with the other believers there. If there was any kind of dullness in them or slowness of heart, well, they say themselves, were our hearts not burning within us? Yes, we've just kind of been smoldering. Maybe the flame has been going down a bit. But we've just had an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus has brought our attention afresh to the word. We realize now that Christ had to suffer these things and then enter his glory. We realize now that God is alive. A people, therefore, who were close to drifting, but actually then come back in and their despondency lifts. No longer drifting, but with a a renewed direction. And their thinking has changed. So helpful that we had that word from Deborah earlier on. God bringing us into a new time. God bringing us into a time where we're to be expectant of things we've never seen before. Well, these disciples were certainly seeing something they'd never expected or believed before, but their expectations changed. They were kind of transformed. Disappointments. Disappointments didn't permanently get a hold of their hearts and squash it. Hope was reborn. Let's not allow disappointments to shape our expectation of God. Sometimes it can be as as simple as I I prayed for someone to be healed and they weren't. And kind of once bitten, twice shy, we might therefore think, well, I'm just going to allow my disappointment to shape my expectations. Therefore, I'm not going to do that again. I'm I'm not going to believe for that again. I'm not going to step out in those uh, other uh, new ways. God has got a new time. That's what was unfolding here. A whole new age really begins with Jesus rising from the dead. And we're in him and his power is available to us. So let's allow our, our hope, our hearts to be refreshed by God, his word and his presence amongst us. Let's pray.